And all I could think about is, now how am I going to get that gorilla up there? Can they walk upstairs? <laughs> this is a cage situation. How big is yeah, How many cage? meals from catering does the gorilla need? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Well Seasoned, the podcast. I'm Stacy, And I'm Patrick. And he has to always think of his name. It's something new every time. <laughs> and we're here today with somebody who I know, and I have to call her Miss Sharice Challenger, Cleary. Ooh, yeah, I use all the names. And Sharice is the Director of Venue and Event Sales at the Museum of the City of New York. Welcome, Reese. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey, girl. Thank you for coming. So for everyone, Reese and I worked together at the Intrepid Museum mm-hmm. uh, just, just a few short minutes ago. It wasn't that long. Many, 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 many years. Just trying to make it sound good. <laughs> you didn't have to do that. It's when we got our tough skin, where we grew up. <laughs> we almost had to tug that fish back ourselves. But remember that Panasonic event that we did where they used the lift over the Hudson River to bring like the largest TV in? Oh, yeah. Fast forward umpteen years later, I met the ladies who did that event. Oh, did you? <laughs> Which is so crazy. That was like, have you ever done an event at the Intrepid? Because I feel like I know you. And they're like, yeah, we did that event. And I'm like, you shut it. Remember when you came in talking about you wanted to bring lions and tigers and bears? And I was like, where's my security at? Oh, my gosh. And they talked about bringing the gorilla to knock around a tough book on the flight deck. Yes. I was just thinking, how are we going to get the gorilla on the flight deck? I thought you were joking when you said <laughs> lions, tigers and bears. Oh, my. But you're literally talking animals like a gorilla. No, we're literally talking about lions, tigers yes. and bears and a gorilla. Yes. And, a gorilla. Okay. and then at one point it changed to wanting to bring an elephant on the ship to walk on the tough book to show how tough the the gorilla okay. would knock the tough book around to show that it wouldn't break. And all I could think about is, now how am I going to get that gorilla up there? Can they walk upstairs? <laughs> this is a cage situation. How big is yeah, How many meals from catering does the gorilla need? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Is the gorilla on any special diet we should know about ahead of time? <laughs> Questions. So with that, we brought Reese on because we wanted Reese to talk about nonprofit events because... We all know nonprofit events is a beast on its own. And Mm -hmm. like we said, that's where you grow your skin and you learn to do things you never thought you would know how to do, such as Mm -hmm. somewhere in peeling labels off of bottles, because (laughs) it's going to be a You want to give us a little intro to yourself? Sure. Well, my name is Cherise Challenger. I've been in the event industry for, oh gosh, going on 20 years. I'm dating myself now. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. (laughs) I've done everything from life cycle events to corporate events and social events. I've worked for nonprofits within New York City, and I've done events in New York and Florida and California, traveling for corporations like Nickelodeon, working for uh, historic landmarks like Central Synagogue and the Intrepid Museum. And I'm currently the director of venue rentals and event sales at the Museum of City of New York. Just being in New York, the events that you do at those locations, because they're all known locations in New York. Some of them are landmarks as well. And so you get a plethora of events coming in. I've worked nonprofit too. And Patrick, being on the AV provider side, you're doing it all, right? You've kind of dealt with the challenges and the ups and downs of planning nonprofit events. So I just wanted to kind of talk about differences, right? Because there are fundamental differences in planning a profit versus non-profit event. Let's talk about the mission of doing events for profit versus non-profit. Uh, 
I know it's so deep, right? Especially when you've worked for a place for a while, you end up kind of living and breathing the mission and you find yourself kind of looking at events and going, this is not even what we represent. It's a little bit different. Whereas for profit, I don't want to say that profit companies don't have a mission statement. They obviously do. But it's a little bit different and it might not be as aligned to what you're doing on a daily basis. How has that kind of worked with you in working at different institutions? When you're planning events, the main thing that you need to think about is what's the goal of this event? Because people attend events thinking, oh, what about the food and the flowers and the cocktails? Who's going to be there? But really, it's about the mission and the message that you're trying to drive home when you're having these events. So what's the purpose that the organization is trying to drive home to their audience when they're having these events? And when you're planning events for a venue or different culture institutions, it's like you're working for 100 different companies in the year. You're doing over 100 events a year and you really have to understand what their end goal is when they're having those events. So it's really important for you when you're meeting with your clients to understand the purpose of the event. Why are they trying to have this event in the first place? This way you can weave that into all of your planning, whether it be or corporate, you really need to understand what their end goal is. If they're telling you that they want to have this event to build camaraderie with the team because the departments are working in silos and this is their one time that everybody's in the room together, you really have to think about engagement and how you're going to bring those people together in that room. Mm -hmm. What is it going to look like? What's it going to smell like? What's it going to feel like when they come in there? And how are you going to get the people from marketing to talk to the people who are in um, Mm, sales? (laughs) How are you going to get those people to come together? When it's a nonprofit, you have to be a little bit more creative because a lot of times you can't appear to be spending a lot of money. And so you really have to think about how you are doing things a little bit outside the box and how you're going to still have that mission present without breaking the bank. And so you tend to be very creative and really wanting to drive the message home, but you do have to really consider what the budget is, what the message is, who the audience is going to be and understanding why we're even bringing all of these people together in one room. I think that's a really good point. And that's something that I find myself talking to the corporate planners about. What's the end goal? What are we going for? On the nonprofit side, it tends to be, what's our call to action at the end of this? What's the end objective? People that are attending this gala, what is it that we want them to do? Do we want them to go volunteer? Do we want them to open their wallets? Do we want them to do both? What is that end objective? Now let's build everything around that particular thing. Right. Really understanding what it is that they're trying to do. Why are you coming together? Why are you even having this event? And who's going to be there? Who are you talking to? Who are these people who are going to walk through these doors? And how are they going to receive this message? In New York, people are going to events every night of the week. And so you really have to think about, is this going to be just yet another night for them? Or how are you going to make this a night to remember for them? One other great point that you brought up is the perception of spending money, right? When you're a nonprofit planner, even if you get a great sponsor in and that great sponsor, let's say since I'm in AV, so so in AV world, let's say I come in to sponsor an event and we're going to throw up this big set and we're going to sponsor this whole thing. And I've had event planners look at me and say, well, that's great, but we can't do that. Why? We're giving it to you. The perception is now all of these attendees are going to think that they're going to give me $10. And of that $10, five of it is going back to throwing the event when really we need it to be X number. The first time I heard that, I was taken aback by it. I was like, oh, well, that makes total sense. I never thought right. it makes sense. It's true. Especially on the venue side of it, there's a lot of times when you think about your venue's mission or the institution's mission that you are working for. And then the people coming in, whereas if 
for a hotel, they might do anything. I don't want to say anything, but you know, they're a little bit more open. But if you're working for Fallen Hero Funds or Feed the Hungry or whatever, and that's what you're representing and somebody comes in talking about anything that goes against that, right? And as a salesperson, because you're living and breathing that mission, it becomes less about your commission or your pay and more like, no, we can't have this in here. Like this doesn't align with us, right? It's so different looking at events that way. Once you've mastered that and you know that that's something you have to be looking for, it'll take you a long way. I remember I was working for a nonprofit organization and we were having a fundraising event. So we're bringing our high donors into a very intimate lunch setting and we were at a country club. So we're putting all of the pieces together for this event. And I had a vendor that I know very well. And she said, oh, I can donate centerpieces for this. And I said, oh, that's great because I really don't have it in my budget to even do anything really elaborate. So that would be great. Whatever you can send over, I would be happy with. But because we had a great relationship, she really wanted to do something special for me. She sent over these beautiful arrangements. Well, the president of the organization walks in and she takes one step in and she's like, what are these flowers? And I hadn't gotten on site yet, but my assistant was there and she's like, oh yeah, we got these flowers and they were donated. Don't worry. We didn't pay for them. They were these huge, beautiful arrangements. And she's like, we can't have this. We can't have this here right now. No. And she starts taking the flowers apart and breaking them into even smaller pieces. And I get this frantic call from someone saying, oh my gosh, she's here taking apart the centerpieces. She said they're too expensive to have on the table. Now this is a lunch with ladies who lunch in the middle of the day at a country club. Oh my goodness. But because we're going to be asking them for money and telling them how we need this money to do whatever mission we were doing that day, we couldn't appear to have money already. Yeah, they're going to take my money and spend it on flowers. And spend it on flowers and country clothes. No, you can't do that. So literally we were in there trying to make smaller arrangements, running into the kitchen, trying to find small vessels to break up these beautiful arrangements that this person was like, oh, wow, this might be a good opportunity for me to get my name out there. Yeah. We have to take them apart because it's just the perception that just going to just ruin everything for this one lunch. And that kind of goes with the community engagement, right? You were able to get somebody within the community to, <laughs> to donate their services, their goods. That's just also something nonprofit versus profit you rely on. You hope and pray somebody out of the goodness of their heart is going to want to donate their services to you. You really do. <laughs> like me and send me something. I need it. <laughs> Look at these events and you know, we have no budget. And as an event manager, you're standing there and you're like, If I had like $500 more, the Dollar Tree, some glue and some crayons, I could do something right now. (laughs) If I could just take this five minutes and MacGyver these little centerpieces together, everything will be great, right? So how do you keep the community involved so that when events come around, it's less of an ask and more of a want? With your institution and institutions, how do you approach community engagement? It's a big part of what I do, and it's constant. It can't just be when you need something. It has to be just an ongoing relationship, just like all relationships. And so if you see that there's someone in the community that is doing something for their business, you should be supporting them and getting the word out about them. And you hope that they would reciprocate. But it's ongoing in the sense of you want to constantly be letting them know what you're working on letting them know what is going on in your world. In your world. (laughs) (laughs) Distracted by small people who look like me. (laughs) (laughs) 
before this all, I always had this mom guilt where I said, you know, I don't spend enough time. I work a lot of late nights with events and I have to be out all the time doing these events and I don't get to spend time with my children and my husband. Well, guess what? Six months later, I'm like, I'm good now. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I'm Thank you. Now. Uh, 2020 fulfilled. Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> We had the same topic in an earlier episode and I'm right there with you. I'm on the road a lot throughout the year. And right now we're at a point where I've been home for six months and I'm in the same boat as you. I can't wait to hop back into a ballroom. <laughs> so sad. I never thought I would have said that. It's so real. You know, the weekends are fine. We have yeah. time on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> I personally, you know, from no experience could say I agree with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. Now coming back to where we were, community. Right. But speaking of community engagement, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to constantly just have those relationships with people and your go-to people that you trust, people who you know will deliver for you no matter what, or can be flexible with you when it comes to pricing or you know, having dynamic pricing for different tiers of clients, different types of clients. And so you have to have that in your back pocket just so that you can stay diverse and you can also stay competitive in a in a really mm-hmm. competitive market, but also so that you can get a couple of different quotes for the same event and there'll be three different price points. You have to be able to be limber in a way that you can serve your clients in the in the best fashion. You touched on it and I don't want it to go missed. It's not about just going back to your contacts when you need them. It's an ongoing relationship. And trust me, it's seen on both sides. If you have someone that only comes to you when they need a venue space and they don't do anything on the other side, it's like, well, no. And this is profit versus nonprofit. We have it on both sides. Foster relationships with your vendors. Don't just call them for that one event and then radio silence here on out. It does make a difference because different opportunities come in different ways, right? And you never know that event that's going to sneak up on you when the president tells you that you have to plan an event on Monday. And I'm not saying this is like personal experience (laughs) or anything and that your weekend's now gone and you have to spend all week speaking to hotels and whatnot. But at least I have someone I could call when I'm like drinking. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. What she said. (laughs) <laughs> I probably have in my inbox four or five different requests from nonprofits for producing their shows virtually right now. We actually just agreed to do one. And just before we got on today, I sent something out on my social media. Hey, we're proud to be sponsoring this nonprofit's virtual event. But we get so inundated on the supplier side that you're absolutely right. When you guys were talking about that relationship, I have one nonprofit that I sponsor every single year, and it's not the biggest as a company. It doesn't give me the most exposure, but it's one that we do because we have a very strong relationship. That person's there helping us out, always introducing us to the important people that do attend their event that we can get business back from. So that person does it right. But just out of the woodwork, I get these Hail Marys, you know, that I'm sure they must be. Right. They just take, 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 and they don't give. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's good because you build those relationships, but also you build these kind of brand ambassadors for your company and your business. And so you have these people now that can go out and talk about the good work that you're doing and how professional you are. And so maybe you don't get the money that you're expecting for that particular event, but maybe they introduce you to someone else who does have a bigger budget and and you might book that event and it's way better. It goes a long way to have those relationships with people in your community and understand what it means to really foster those relationships and have good ties because you might not even be in the room and someone might be talking about an event or a need for a plan or or something and your name comes up. And that's when the real benefit comes. 
I, I kind of feel like I need to say this. Not <laughs> all nonprofits are broke. I would agree with that 100%, true. Stacey Ann. We deal with a lot of nonprofits on our side, you know, looking for as much as they can. But we have some other nonprofits that we deal with. Their budgets are as big, if not bigger, than some of the big corporations yeah. that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a total spectrum when we're talking about nonprofit programming. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know this is something we're all dealing with now because of COVID and reduction of teams, but in a nonprofit world, and I just said not all nonprofits are broke. Many of the nonprofit organizations have small teams. And I'll speak from our experience, Reese. We were looking for clients. We were doing site visits. We were putting together the contracts. We were executing the event. We were closing out the books, kind of going back where we said it kind of built us, right? You learn every aspect of the event. And you can apply those skills everywhere. So now when I speak to my vendors and I'm looking at contracts, so if I drew up contracts, I knew what we were looking at, what we're talking about. I knew those clauses that we're looking at. That's one of the things that I think is fantastic about working with a smaller team. On the flip side, you don't sleep. <laughs> right. But I feel like I'm not sleeping now. So what's the difference? <laughs> I don't know. How are you dealing with um, having a smaller team to execute? I think that when you have been in an environment where you do know everything from soup to nuts of how to execute an event, it allows you to be a little bit more um, nimble when it comes to working in a small team. So it doesn't really bother me. I actually would prefer to work in a small team because there's a lot less of checks and balances I have to go through. I know steps that need to be taken in order for us to get to the day of the event where you're executing and everything is buttoned up. And you hit it right on the head, Stacey, when you talked about there's some teams that just handle sales and there's some teams that just handle production. And then they might handle the sale and then pass it to another team that will deal with contracting. And when you've done all of that stuff, it kind of helps the flow of the pre-production go a little bit smoother and quicker because you know what's the next step and you can be working in those multiple steps concurrently. So you you don't have to wait for someone else to get it on their desk and then have it in their timeline to work on it and then send it back to you. And then you can take the next step. You can keep the wheels going and and then things just keep going smoothly. And and you have a lot less pauses where I've been in larger teams where you do have to pass it off to someone else. You have to depend on what their workload is and you're kind of nudging them like, hey, did you get this? Are you done with this? Can I have this by Friday? So you get to the stern voice, like, I need this by Friday. <laughs> I mean, so when you have it all in your timeline, so you can keep things flowing a little bit better. So I actually prefer that format of working as small a team for those reasons. Patrick, on your side, do you prefer that as well? Do you rather say, okay, I have my person over here that's going to deal with my production and graphics? How do you feel? It depends on the scenario. Sometimes it's good when we break things up and have a larger team that we're communicating with. Okay, graphics are coming from this person. I'm going to link their graphics with my graphics. I don't need to be as involved on that. That happens there. But a lot of times when we're dealing with nonprofits, we are dealing with smaller teams. So in doing that, on our end, we're introducing, I feel like, those people up to multiple people versus instead of a one-to-one ratio, they're dealing with a lot more people on their end to our end versus if that's the case, we'll try to streamline it, have all of our communication go through one person and back to them. I don't know if this makes sense, what I'm saying, or if I'm rambling, but we try to team up either one-to-one or have it stream through one person if there's a smaller team that we're dealing with so that that person is not dealing with eight, eight people on our end. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Everyone's like, uh, you need to address what it really is. Yes, yes, the budgets are small. 
<laughs> we all get it. We've had to uh, beg a couple times. As like I said earlier, peel off labels, look at events from the night before and take those centerpieces and put it up in your office because you're going to need it the next day. <laughs> you're telling all the secrets now. These are things like, oh, are you going to use this? Are you taking these centerpieces home? Like, I'll keep them. It's very nice. Thank you. And next day you're like, oh, right? no, no, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. You we'll go take home care and of rest. It. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the budgets are smaller, which means you do become more creative. I'll speak on the venue side and even Patrick, sometimes on your side, I'm sure you have to do this too. You have to line up events back to back so that maybe the AV team only has to load in once and load out once. You could save some money or now you're saving money because of equipment. You're saving money because of floral. If you're working in a venue that has production, time, production, all that, right? Because now you're looking at it and you'll say, listen, here's a stage. Here's what they have. If we only do minor edits here and there, then maybe we could work something out to save money. So even though the budgets are smaller, it doesn't mean that you are creating a backyard party. <laughs> you could do so much more with it as well if you just kind of think creatively out of the box. It's not a flaw if you can think it through that way. If you have several events and they're going back to back and you know that you're going to be working with this vendor for several of these events, They can load in everything before the first event, stage some equipment that they're not necessarily using right now, set up. So that reduces setup time for the next event. It might reduce your budget for loading purposes because you don't have to do several trips. If you can let them leave equipment in a certain space and just stash it for the next event. And then, you know, the crews, you can even double up once. They might be rigging lighting, but they might only need a certain amount of lights for this first event, but they'll do the full lighting scope for two events because they're already up there on those ladders. And so you just get it done at that time and that reduces the cost for those clients because you don't have to do it twice. So being able to think about what the logistics entail ahead of time so that you can cut down costs helps with the budget and it helps with the mission of the organization if you can do that. So you're just constantly trying to piggyback off of different events and really think through the logistics and your timeline of what you have on your plate, whether it be just for one event or multiple events that are happening within a week or month. So I'm thinking in my head about what I've known about different corporate events. This percentage of the budget for the entire event goes towards the hotel. This percentage goes towards AV, this percent towards food and beverage. And I'm thinking to myself that with some exceptions in the corporate world, that the vast budget I feel like from an outsider goes towards entertainment in a nonprofit. And again, not talking about those of you out there listening that have corporate events and you're hiring an A-list celebrity act. I'm saying middle of the road corporate event in the nonprofit sector, more of their budget is going towards entertainment. And that might be the band, whoever's playing, could be walk around character, atmospheric entertainment. Do you guys find that true? I'm just thinking off the top of my head that this is from an outside perspective on this one. This is what I feel like I've seen. It depends on the mission of the organization and the event. It depends on where they want to place value. If you're having a gala and you have a great keynote speaker at this event, then you're going to spend a lot of money on AV because you want to make sure that you have all the equipment to make that go smoothly. If you're not doing very many events that year, but you're bringing everybody together for this one time, you might want to put a bigger dollar on the entertainment because you want them leaving feeling like this was a full-bodied event and they've experienced something that they've never experienced before and they leave there talking about you because you're going to need that good feeling to last with those people for a very long time because you're not going to be doing a lot of events. 
it really does depend on the end goal again for the client and how many events you're doing with the lifespan of your event that you know where to put those dollars. If you're going to be having a bunch of events throughout the year, you might not want to spend a ton of money on decor because you're going to be doing a bunch of these things. And so really, let's just focus on content and making sure that the message goes out. But if this is your one thing, maybe you do like a big blowout holiday party at the end of the year, entertainment is going to be a big portion, a big percentage of your budget because you're not doing a ton of events. And so you want people to leave feeling like this was worth the wait. And I'm glad I came. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. I don't know very much about this next subject, but I want to ask you guys, working in historic landmarks, tell me about that. <laughs> you guys have both worked in... I'm going to need a cocktail if we're going to talk about <laughs> oh, this. Goodness. I know, right? It's a little job. <laughs> talk to me about the complications. I've worked in some historical landmarks where it's a little bit more white glove service. So for us, for AV, if we're putting truss up, we're having to bring in carpet to put it underneath so that we're not touching the marble floors, those kind of things. I understand a little bit, but tell me from your perspectives a little bit about working in these historic landmarks. It depends on if your landmark has elevators or bomb elevators. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Right? That's very, very important. (laughs) There's a lot of rules that go around working at a historic landmark you're pretty much giving people a list of do's and don'ts. Remember the no confetti on the ship? Because you find still conf- my rule no matter where I, I take am. that <laughs> everywhere. Do not bring confetti anywhere near me. I had an event where somebody put out confetti on the table and it was like wire hangers to me. I was like, what are you doing? I've <laughs> seen confetti for years to come. Now we're going to come back here in like 2015. The same purple piece of dot is going to be here again. <laughs> There's anything from what you could put out. Like he said, the loading in, putting carpet underneath, where you can store things. Remember, we were working in a museum, right? So a lot of the storage for the museum when you did an event was for the exhibits. So we were hiding all the exhibits behind things so that we can do it. I don't know. What are you dealing with right now at your location? Well, right now I'm in a museum and I've been in museums in the past, but you know, there's different types of museums. And so you'd say, I came into this one thinking, oh yeah, I know, but the artifacts at the Intrepid are very different than the artifacts at the Museum of City of New York. We were very careful at the Intrepid Museum because the artifacts would be planes, but you don't have to really worry as much about climate and temperature control at the Intrepid because the planes are pretty resilient. But when I'm in an art museum, I have to worry about people wanting to open windows. And if the window is open, what is that going to do for the humidity in the room? And is that going to make the edge of the photos that we have on the wall curl up? And then the color is going to be discolored. And this is the only copy of this photo. We don't have replications of it. And so if this gets ruined, then that's when the world ends. So that's like you really have to understand the culture of the historical landmark that you work within and what's important to them and why it's important to them. At the Intrepid, we wouldn't necessarily want people leaning on the planes. And that's something you have to really focus on, because when you're walking past a huge plane, you wouldn't think that you could do that much damage leaning on one, but you could, you can. And so really discouraging people from even touching the plains, it's a hard thing to do. If you have outdoor space, more of a terrace area, people might think as soon as I step outside, maybe I can have a cigar bar out here during my event. Well, no, you can't because you're still technically on the property of, you know, this institution. So you can't have a cigar bar. You have to go all the way over there through the turnstiles at the corner if you want to have that. 
<laughs> Even at a historic location, there are locations within the location that is sacred. We had the kamikaze exhibit. That was a location on the ship where, remember when the ship first opened, you'd walk by and like a vet would be sitting there in tears because this spot is where he lost his cousin, his brother, his best friend. There's parts of the ship that become sacred within itself, or even I'm saying ship, but location in general that becomes sacred within itself. So you kind of respect that. There's just so much, Patrick, that goes into it. It's really a lot. I've worked at a synagogue, which is the oldest reformed synagogue in New York. In the Jewish culture, there's a lot of candle lighting. But this particular sanctuary had experienced a really traumatic fire and rebuild from that. And so paying attention to when we're lighting the candles, how we're lighting the candles, how we're extinguishing the candles was a big deal for them because they never want to have to go through restoring this historical landmark again but they don't want to relinquish those traditions. You really have to pay attention to the history of these landmarks and why it's important and why the rules are in place. And maybe there need to be new rules or why are we holding on to particular rules? Some might seem like, what, what, what's the big deal? You know, why don't we just do it this way? Well, we don't do it this way because in the past we've had this experience and we don't want to have to go down that road again. So let's just take these steps to be careful. On the site visit too, We take a lot of time to not only show you the venue, but give you a little bit of the history so that hopefully when you come back here, you'll understand when we say no to this, it's because of this. So we took a lot of time in the site visits to say, this is what this meant. And this is what this meant. This is what this place is. And did you know about this? So that when they're upset because you can't nail something into the side of the ship. (laughs) (laughs) You can't have open flame or you can't whatever it is. Yeah, you get to kind of understand that. It's hard for planners too, because a lot of what you're taught as a planner is that you don't want to say no to your clients. So you're always trying to figure out a way to say no without saying no. But you have to think of alternatives to what's suggested sometimes to make them feel better. But sometimes no is no. And sometimes you just have to have that kind of conviction to understand why the rules are in place. It's to keep the integrity of the institution. And that's part of why you're there as an ambassador of that museum or place or wherever the historic landmark that you're working within. So you understand the history and the memories that are created there and how important it is to so many people. And so part of your job is making sure that you preserve that and understanding why those rules are in place. Stacy, you gave me a bit of a flashback when you were talking about the elevator. We did a program in Tigua Casino in Puerto Rico. So it's an, an old casino building, but it's a small building in the middle of old San Juan. And in that one, we actually had to uh, remove some windows on the second floor because their ballroom space was on the second floor and they never had a production this big. And it was only a 50 person dinner. We had to take out the windows on the second story of this historic landmark and deliver our stage decks through the windows of the second story because we couldn't go through the bottom floor because of the marble floor. So we had to find another way around it. That was an undertaking. But some of these clients, they see these venues and they get all excited about these historic landmarks and they don't realize what the limitations are and the cost end up being because of having to get around some of those limitations. The same thing, like if we're loading into pretty much any major league baseball or football stadium, until you get the okay to be on the grass, you're not allowed on the grass. It's almost Reese, like what you were saying about the painting. Like, am I really going to upset the grass by one person stepping? Yeah, you, you might. So it's, it's a thing. But it's been very interesting hearing you guys talk about this. I think I've learned to do site visits a little bit differently working in historic landmarks because 
Now it's like, yes, the space is important and you want to see it, but let me see your back of house. What does the kitchen look like? Where's the elevator? How far is the elevator from the location of the event? How far is my storage from the location of the event? How can I move through? It translates from profit to nonprofit in different ways. Maybe nonprofit is you can't roll across the marble. Maybe a profit location is you can't do it, or I mean, nonprofit profit, it works both ways. The union has to do it. So you just kind of end up doing site visits and looking at locations very differently than somebody coming in looking to do a wedding and might not have that knowledge, right? If they were not in the field. I think it kind of goes with the tips and tricks of doing events for nonprofit events. It's their money, it's your resources, it's working in historic landmarks. What are some things that you think you've kind of picked up along the way that you almost feel like is applicable to multiple events? One of the main things is to really listen to the client and think through what the purpose of your event is going to be ahead of time. Even before you go visit the venues, really listening to what the mission is, because you could get lost in so many details and then you end up with this fabulous event that did nothing. It fell flat because you didn't follow up with what the mission is of the organization. For nonprofits in particular, you want to really understand what the budget is and how you're going to allocate those dollars to the different line items and play around with it. Get several different quotes. Don't be beholden to just one vendor. They might do a great job, but they might not be a good fit for this particular event. And so really understanding what the budget is and how to make those dollars spread across all those different line items will go a long way for you. Another tip is to really understand the brand that you're working with. Understanding the brand will help you to get that message across. I used to work at Nickelodeon and I learned so much in my time there about branding. I remember we were doing an event for one of the Nickelodeon brands. It was Nicktoons. And so it's more it's more for adults, maybe those cartoons and there's like nighttime cartoons. And so we had to get a cake. And I was like, oh, I have a vendor for a cake. And the vendor was like, oh yeah, I'm going to put flowers around the side. And I presented it to someone that was like, yeah, we're going to get a cake and they're going to put flowers around the side. And they're like, flowers, that is not who we are. (laughs) That better be slime. No flowers. 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 I'm like, I guess you're right. Looking around at all this orange and dark brown and and green really dark characters (laughs) who are like superheroes self so you know why would i even think flowers would be okay understanding the brand will go a long way and you know what those colors mean to them and getting the colors right (laughs) and and what's the messaging what's the tagline uh it will go a long way and it helps you to infuse the message in smaller ways almost subliminally throughout the entire event. Maybe you have the logo on a screen when people are walking in. Maybe you can put a gobo somewhere on the wall so that they can still see the brand when when presentations are happening. You want to put it on the signage somewhere or on the podium seal. Really figuring out ways to weave it in without having to announce it all the time will go a long way and your client will be really happy. One of the brilliant things that today's episode has kind of turned into outside of our our nonprofit discussion, and I think it's important for suppliers and planners alike, is the underarching theme that we have going on of knowing what the end goal is. And sometimes, I'm not giving myself a pat on the back, but sometimes when I've asked, hey, what's our our objective, even in the corporate world, it comes across as a surprise. Well, nobody's ever asked us that. Well, what do you mean? And some of those planners on the corporate side don't even know what their objective is, which is 
mind-boggling to me. So know that objective. And for you suppliers out there, know that objective because maybe they're asking you for something. But if you knew the objective, you'd have a better answer. I understand that you're looking for this, but this might actually help you get towards that objective a little bit better and being able to see it. And I think that's kind of brilliant that Rishi kept on bringing that up a, a few times. That is a real thing that I think in our industry on the supplier side that they need to take more account of. What is that objective? What, what's our mission? Yeah, I think understanding the mission will go a long way. It'll tell you how you can spend the money. It'll tell you who's going to be in the audience. Who will you select as speakers? What type of event it will be? Is this an annual event or is this a one-time thing? Does this thing have legs? How long are we going to be talking about this? Or do we need to reinvent ourselves thereafter? So really understanding what the end goal is will go a long way for just about every event, even a social event. If you're having a wedding, the end goal is that you're going to get married. It's not just simple as getting married. What's the message that you want to say? You're bringing all your two families together. And what is it that you want them to leave feeling? Do you want them to know you as a couple better? Do you want them to know the families as a whole? You want to blend the families together as a whole? So how are you going to make that happen during this event? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there there was the mic drop right there. She just dropped the mic. We do a lot of customer-facing events at my company now. And our budgets, like everyone else's, are growing tighter. You end up losing money for your decor and for all that. I've spent a lot of time in Home Goods and Lowe's now. Going to Home Goods and Lowe's to the plant section and getting like little orchids and little stuff. And it's like nothing <laughs> ever. Like using those those resources. And it's so funny because you spend all this money on these huge centerpieces and you go to Lowe's and you get like a $10 orchid and everyone is like, this one is mine at the end of this event. And you're like, this right. made a difference. <laughs> They're walking out the door with it. And it's like this little orchid made a difference. Okay. Or just, we knew this before, but gaffer's tape is the answer to Your everything. You know, <laughs> also it's very expensive. So you also never put it down. That's right. You make your, your tackle box with all this stuff in it. <laughs> my little tool belt. I was about to say your tool belt that we had. Tool belt. Walking <laughs> <laughs> around with two belts like we're really doing something. It's so true, though. You really can. You, you can spend your dollars in a local business and it'll go a long way. I recently attended a dinner, a very intimate dinner. There was only about 30 people in attendance and they had our names personally you know, out of wood. And I was like, oh, wow, this is so nice. You feel like you're expected. You feel like they thought this through and this is my seat. And my name is on my seat. I can take this away at the end of the night. So this is my little takeaway from here. I thought it was this huge thing. And so I go and I'm thinking about it for another event. I'm like, wow, that was a really nice touch. Let me see if I can add that to this other event. And I go look it up and it's like $1.50 per name. I'm like, this little $1.50 thing went that long. Like I'm still thinking about this a month later. It's crazy. Or Reese, you remember this chicken pot pie? Oh, well, you know, that's one of my favorites. It names. was it was amazing. <laughs> We're doing this gala. There's no money. And of course, everyone thinks high-end gala. People are spending like thousands of dollars per ticket to go there. You think, oh my God, am I supposed to give them steak and lobster or shrimp? Well, we had McDonald's budget. <laughs> well, what do you do with a McDonald's budget? You make a McDonald's dinner. We got chicken pot pies. But you make it fashion. In the ceramic <laughs> dish. And instead of like a dough, it was like a phyllo right. dough that went over it. And so you're talking about going from a hundred plus per meal 
And I think we brought that down to like 60 bucks, but the stupidity of it or the greatness of it, I should say, <laughs> was that everyone loved the chicken pot pie. I'm still talking about that. It was pot so pie. good. It, and then didn't we have like an apple pie station or like American pie station? Yes. Yeah, some kind of pie going. It was like a pie theme going throughout that whole event. <laughs> so we had pies and we had chicken pot pie and it was fantastic. And everyone loved it. I do love some chicken pot pie. It was not? delicious. I'm starting to think over here, man, it's almost dinner time. Right. If you don't like chicken pot pie, you can't sit with no. us. Because <laughs> we were right there in that kitchen, like talking about nobody going to eat that plate. We're going to eat that plate. But you know, the theme, the overall theme was a very Americana theme. So to have the chicken pot pie and the apple pie and red, white, and blue, cloth linens, you know, it went a long way and it speaks to the theme of the night. So it, it made sense. It made it sense totally. Thing, but it was low cost, high impact. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those are, those are just some things. Thank you, Reese. But before we wrap everything up, we ask everyone, what's your pearl of wisdom that you want to leave with people. It could be anything from that snake plant behind you does not need to be watered every day, people. It actually likes to be dry. I don't know anything about that plant. Actually, you can ask my husband. I'm what? Still alive. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that's why it's meant for you to, I think, blah, blah, and give us something deep. Whatever you'd like. What's your little pearl of wisdom? Stay true to who you are when you're planning events. It's so easy to get lost. And if the answer is no for you, then it is no. And you figure out a way to communicate that no, but don't let yourself be bent into a situation where you're uncomfortable and then you're paying for it later on when you knew better in the beginning. It's really important to just stick to your guns. If you're planning an event and you know your worth and you understand what's going on, you have to lead that group and make them understand your point of view. Sometimes there's many ways to skin a cat who will come up with a better idea and you have to stay strong. Yeah, there's many ways that we can do it, but we're going to do it this way. Yeah, exactly. I like it. (laughs) Okay, Reese, you're going to join us for paprika. Okay. It's the seasoning of nothing. So my paprika story of the week is when Reese and I discovered our love for rear steak. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's my favorite story to tell about events though. You do know that, right? I feel like we need to hear the story. Okay. Okay. For our people that's listening and they're like, I don't get it. I am Jamaican. And if you don't know what well done is, it's burnt. <laughs> it is like no pink Nothing. at all. Don't play with it. Nothing. And we <laughs> yeah. eat very well done meat. So the year is approximately 2010-ish. Probably. Sure. We had a very small high-end event come to the ship. Now, our caterer was an outside caterer, but they were on a ship. And this particular client had probably 10, 15 people. It was tiny and they spent four or 500 a head on just food. So she calls us, you guys, dinner is ready. And we're like, ooh, we eating good tonight. (laughs) We cross the ship, we walk over. We were outside in the gun tub. Mm -hmm. It's this area of the ship that's right over the Hudson River. Beautiful. Patrick, it's like we're in a movie right now. This night, we walk out into the gun tub and the table is set exactly how you would see in the actual event. Right over the Hudson, the sun is setting. You see that amber light coming in. I'm setting the scene here for you, Stacey. <laughs> and we're out there just enjoying each other's company. Drinking wine. wine. The chef himself brings out the plate, put it down for us. And we're sitting here and the client is not needing us right now. We're able to like let our guard down a little bit and relax for a second. And we're eating and we're talking about how delicious 
the most delicious steak, the most delicious side, the appetizers delicious. If they would have put me in the electric chair at the end of that meal, I would have been okay. This is my last meal and I'm fine with that. Delicious. Bottle of wine. And so we're just like sitting there with the caterer and she's like, you guys, it's like pitch dark out here. You need to turn on the lights. And we're like, we don't even know where the lights are on this. And she's like, oh, it's right here. (laughs) So she flips on the lights and we look at our plate and there's blood on her plate. And it's like mooing at you. (laughs) You know, like those comics when the thought bubble comes up and maybe two people's thought bubbles merge. (laughs) Yes. I think Stacey and my thought bubble both came up and merged at the exact same time. We looked down at our plate and then we looked down at (laughs) each other. After having talked about how delicious this steak was, I had to go back to my New York Bronx roots and say, that meal we tore It was a big toe production. It was delicious. I mean, I almost picked (laughs) up the plate and licked it. She's like, yeah, it was just delicious, right? And she's like, got this big Brazilian accent. She's from Brazil. You could hear the forks clink. Yes. And it's like almost suddenly we didn't even know what to say. And she's still going with the conversation, (laughs) carving the steak. And she's like, good, right? And we look at each other and we're like, was this like this the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> we are traumatized. We are traumatized. So did you guys keep eating or could you not no, eat anymore? So now, or? so at the end of that, we kind of... It turned into your love of no, steak. So it did turn into a love, but we excused ourselves. And Reese and I, like a movie, walked down the entire corridor of the ship in silence, not knowing what right, to say to each right. other. So like for a week after that, we're like, but... That was like the most delicious steak. It's like our brain, we couldn't wrap around the thought that this delicious steak could also have not been well done. <laughs> How could they live in the same world together? Well, welcome <laughs> welcome to the bright side of things here. I'm a big medium rare to rare. Oh if anything's gosh. more than that, it has to have steak sauce, otherwise I won't eat it. I couldn't even look at a well done steak. That's like a hamburger. I don't know. From that experience, that's all I have is like a medium rare steak all the time. Yeah. But that night I went home and I was like, mom, there was blood on my plate. I need a detox tea. <laughs> so that is our story of uh, when we discovered that rare steak is actually good. Stacy, I wish I was there to take a photo of you eating that steak. During, Maybe a video. during that process, I'll tell you, Reese and I were like, <laughs> yes, that noise, Stacey. I mean, we were eating this steak as if it was the first time we've ever eaten. She was eating the steak and also revving a car. <laughs> <laughs> Stacey took a video of me at a dinner one time, and Vimari was there. Shout out to Vimari if you're listening. Mm-hmm. And Gilbert, I believe, was there, right? Yeah. And Mark. And Mark Kaplan. Okay. So we're all sitting down eating a dinner with a big group of people. I take this big bite. This is the best steak ever. And I'm like clearly in the video enjoying this steak a little too much. (laughs) Stacey is videotaping me, not to my knowledge at the time. Which she's very good at, by the way. Thank you. And she's doing a sound over of it going, um, num, 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 num. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I glance over at her and I'm like, oh God, this is going to be everywhere. It is the best video I have. I actually just watched it the other night of him taking a bite. It will not show up on our social media page if anybody's waiting on that. It will not. Oh, it absolutely will. Doing it. Doing it. Anyway, so my paprika, since both of you guys are from New York, I wanted to bring up the great late RBG. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who just recently passed away, she actually has a funny quote because, you know, the notorious RBG. She was on stage at some event. The moderator asked her, so what do you think about Biggie Smalls? Notorious, who you're named with. And she said, well, I just recently found out about this person, looked him up, 
And she and he had a lot in common. And everybody in the crowd's like, what? And she's like, yes. They were both from the mean streets. She from mean streets of where? Uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, my New Yorkers. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like, okay, what is she going to say? Like, what is it? Like, you know, they both like that one song. (laughs) (laughs) They both have their street cred. But seriously, I'm not messing with her, though. I would not have messed with her. (laughs) R.I.P. girl. R.I.P. I think that that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you again to our special guest for joining thank us. Thank you, Reese. Oh, thank you guys for having me. This was fun. <laughs> Before we wrap up, everyone, if you have any event questions and if you have an event debrief, whatever randomness happened, and you know, the one that's going to go in your memoir, go ahead and share that with us. Don't worry. It could be anonymous. We'll give you a name. Email us at wellseasonededucation.com. It'll be in the show notes. Thanks, everyone. You guys have a good day. Bye. Bye, everybody. Episode produced by Patrick Brochu and Cece and Van Horn Doria. Sound editing by Rocky Doria. And song by Dr. Delight. Okay. Ready? Patrick Twain. <laughs> <laughs>